0: reading from Matthew chapter 2, the birth of Jesus Christ. This is how the birth of Jesus Christ came about.
1: Excuse me. Excuse me. It says here, like, the birth came about like it's true? Like, isn't that just a nice Christmas story? Like, kind of like Santa bringing presents and stuff? I mean, why should we believe that any more than the story of the twas night night before christmas or anything Mm.
0: (laughs) okay google uh, can we really trust this account no i don't want to change my password (laughs) (laughs) lewis
2: let me jump in for a minute dave thanks for the question and uh, thanks for bringing your own microphone. <laughs> Appreciate it. That uh, really was kind like of i like to you. be prepared. That was kind of you. Uh, good question. Good question that other people might also have. Uh, you know, this time of year, when we come to the Christmas story, uh, I think it can sometimes be muddled with other stories that we tell this time of year. It's a time of year where stories are told, where there's a sense of a bit of enchantment maybe, all the lights and all the things that are going on that I think sometimes I'm um, with you, Dave, that uh, you, we can get caught up and people can get caught up in thinking uh, that it's just fiction or just a nice story that goes along with just, we might read Twas the Night Before Christmas." Uh, We might watch movies uh, like Elf or other movies, and then we read the story from the Bible. And we don't make distinctions, maybe between them. And even if you make one in your own heart and mind, it may be that people around you don't really make a distinction between one story or the other. Uh, But I think there is a big difference. As Lewis started reading, uh, this is how the story came about uh, this is, these were the events. The authors that he's reading from is Matthew, was a disciple of Jesus, someone that walked with Jesus. The other accounts that we have in the Bible, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, uh, were a people who lived in the time Matthew, of course, and uh, John were disciples of Jesus, while Luke, uh, Luke and Mark were close associates of people who were disciples of Jesus, living in the same time period, writing accounts of what actually happened. Uh, The story does not start once upon a time, does not start in many of the ways that we would expect a fictional or mythic tale to start. It starts out much more in the way that we would see history come about and someone who is writing history. In fact, as Luke starts his gospel, he starts out by saying, I did a careful search, O Theophilus, this is the guy he's writing to, of the accounts and events so that you can be aware and so that others might be aware of what actually happened. In other words, I'm setting out to write history of what happened. It's not like any myth or story that might be written. And so it's very different than fictional stories. But some other people might say, yeah, well, that's fine and good, but how do we know that Luke wrote it? or Matthew wrote it, or John wrote it, didn't the text become corrupted over time? In fact, many people will make this argument that here's, you're telling me something, this was written you know, 2,000 years ago. Who knows how many redactors and editors and people came in? Who knows how many people changed it over time? I mean, couldn't it have been changed again and again and again? And who knows if we actually have something that was written by those original followers of Jesus. Well, actually, the, the the research and the scholarly, the evidence we have for the Bible being accurate to what was written is far greater than almost any other ancient document, and far greater than a lot of documents that go unquestioned, like Homer's Iliad or biographies of Alexander the Great, which... Most people will read and not question, not realizing that the earliest copies of those we have were written five, seven, sometimes a thousand years after the original writing is the earliest copy we have. Whereas the New Testament, uh, we have copies that date back nearly to the lifetime of the people who wrote them. First century, certainly we have parts, but second century, uh, we have Almost full copies of what was written that date back to the second century, less than a hundred years after the lifetime of those who wrote them, far closer than any other ancient document, most other ancient documents we have we have maybe five ten copies, the best ones, maybe fifty copies that are hundreds of years after they were written. The New Testament we have five thousand five hundred. Ancient, either parts or complete manuscripts of them. So we can be confident that what was written, what you have in your Bible before you by Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, are, you can be fairly certain that those are the actual words written by Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. In fact, more certain than you can be about any other ancient document that you might read. You have what was written. And they wrote, as if writing history. So they're writing at a time where if what they wrote, we say, well, does that make it true? Well, they wrote in a time where anyone who wanted to refute it, and there were many people who wanted to refute it, could have easily said, that's not true, or they're lying about that, and these documents would, uh, in all likelihood, not have survived as false Uh, stories and false news stories. So there's actually a lot of evidence that these are reliable stories and that they are written as history of what actually happened. So hopefully that helps Dave. Good question though. Thank
1: you. That was really good for just coming off the cuff. Thank
0: you. (laughs) His mother Mary was pledged to be married to Joseph. because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said to the prophet. The virgin will be a child and will give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke up, He did what the angel of the Lord had commanded him, and took Mary home as his wife. But he had no union with her until she gave birth to a son, and he gave him the name Jesus.
1: Wait a second. Wait a second here. Come on. I'm sorry to interrupt again, but really, a virgin birth? Come on. Does that sound a little bit unusual to you at all?
2: Lewis, let me try again. Good question, Dave. Virgin birth, certainly unusual, uh, a little unusual, right? Not something uh, uh, you or I uh, have experienced, of course, but not even something we've really heard about happening to any of our friends, right? No one's, no one's uh, had that happen to any of your friends or relatives, which uh, actually makes it worth recording because it's something that's pretty remarkable, Uh, It's certainly something that doesn't happen Uh, very often. It is improbable, but the question is, is it impossible? Uh, There's a a scholar, uh, William Lane Craig, who uh, is now a great theologian. But before he became a Christian, the virgin birth was actually a big hang-up for him. And it was a scientific genetic hang-up for him. Because his question was, his problem with the virgin birth is that it is genetically impossible. Mary does not have the makeup within her to give birth to a son. Specifically, she is missing a Y chromosome to be able to give birth to a male child. And he, for years, used this as evidence to say that, well, forget it. There's no way the virgin birth could come about where Mary would birth a male child. And for many years, for William Wayne Craig, this was a, this was a big hang-up for him uh, until he came to the point where he did become a Christian and the way that he resolved it in his own mind. In his words, he said, you know, first of all, there are some questions that will go remain unanswered at times. But he said, I came to the point where I had to look at the evidence that pointed to the fact." that God, there was a God who had created. It was a God who had created a universe and the world. And he said, once I took the step to say the evidence points to the fact that there is a God who has created and formed and made all of this, then it wasn't that much of a leap to say than to create a Y chromosome is child's play. And so the question often comes down to not so much did a virgin birth take place, um, but really what is your stance and what is your perspective when it comes to miracles and what is your belief when it comes to God? Because if you approach it from a very naturalistic mindset that says, never can anything outside of the natural take place and if someone says it takes place, I will never believe it because only the natural and only the way things normally work are how things always work and will always work. Well, then you come to something like the virgin birth and you would say, well, no, that couldn't have taken place because nothing unnatural, supernatural ever takes place. But if you approach it from the perspective of God who created all of this and started it all, would he not then have the ability to intervene at times and suspend at times the rule of nature and do something supernatural? He's outside and has the ability and authority to do that. It's kind of like, uh, as I, you might liken it to maybe a A a school principal who has authority within the school to change things even though the way they normally flow. Maybe you're a student here who has a test tomorrow. Perhaps you have a test in seventh period history tomorrow, but you forgot about it and you get to school and all your friends are talking about the seventh period history test and you are unprepared and you go, oh no. I totally forgot and this test is like 50% of our grade and what am I going to do? And it's going to happen at 7th period tomorrow because you always have history during 7th period on Monday and tomorrow's Monday and 7th period is coming so you will have history and there will be a test because the teacher said there will be a test and you're worrying about it all day and you're anxious about it all day and then right after the 6th period bell an announcement comes over the intercom and it's the principal and he says all students are required to report to the auditorium for a seminar during seventh period. And suddenly you let out a great sigh because you will not have your history test like you normally have because the principal of the school has intervened with his authority to change the schedule from what normally happens to something that's out of the ordinary. And you will later tell people about the remarkable day you had and maybe even the miracle that was done because the ordinary was changed. And could not, if God is outside and able and the creator of all of this, could not He at times suspend the laws of nature at times to do things that are supernatural? And when He does, would it not be something worth remarking upon? Would it not be something worth recording strictly because and simply because it is so far out of the ordinary. It is so far out of what normally and naturally happens that people would take notice. And so the miracles that Jesus does in his life are to point to the fact that this is someone who is different and who is able, who is different from all that have come before. They point to his divinity. And so the virgin birth, as improbable as it may seem, when you approach it from a theistic mindset, it may be improbable, but it is not impossible for God to do that. So, Dave, hopefully that helps you out there.
1: That was great, Pastor Rick. Thanks. I don't know why I have all these questions after all of a sudden after coming in 20 years, but it must be a, a busy week. Sorry. Sorry. Go ahead, Lou. Sorry. The visit of the
0: Magi. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea, during the time of King Herod... You know,
1: that's another thing. All these places, you know, the places that the Bible talks about. I mean, uh, you know, they mention Bethlehem, and, you know, it talks about Bethlehem, and you see that cute little nativity with cute little baby Jesus, you know, but... Why don't they have more evidence? I mean, what's the difference between that place or, like, Santa's workshop and the North Pole? Why isn't there more stuff written, like Athens and Rome, stuff we can read about in the history books?
2: Come on, Luke. Another good question, Dave. Hold on, Lewis. I got this one. Uh, I I think that is a good question because I think at times this story, again, becomes so familiar. And for those of us that live in America... Bethlehem can seem like Neverland or Mars or just Disneyland, like, like some fictional place that, you know, we have no idea what it is, where it is. It doesn't feel real. You know, you drive by the common and you see a little nativity scene there and oh, we sing, oh, little town of Bethlehem, right? I mean, we never sing like, oh, little town of Burlington. I mean, so it can feel like... A place that maybe doesn't even exist in reality. Um, And actually, if you were going to write a mythic and a fictional story or something that you wanted people to believe but didn't want them to verify, you probably wouldn't want to use places that actually exist. Or if you did use a place that actually existed, you'd want to use one that is so obscure that people wouldn't really go and check it out and find out if what you're saying is true. And Bethlehem is just not that place. Bethlehem is a real place in history and in reality now. And not only that, even though it's not as a big metropolis like Jerusalem would have been in this area of the world, it's not insignificant at all. In fact, it's a very significant city in Israel and in Jewish history. Uh, it's the city where uh, Jacob, when he was traveling through, one of the first place, times it became famous when Jacob, whose name was later changed to Israel, that the nation got its name from, he was traveling with his family through this area when his wife Rachel got ready to give birth. And in the midst of giving birth to her son, she actually died. And, she, and so Jacob buried her in a tomb in Bethlehem. And for hundreds and thousands of years after that, Bethlehem became a pilgrimage site for Jewish people to go to the tomb of Rachel. In fact, today, if you go to uh, Israel and look and go, you can go to the tomb of Rachel in Bethlehem. Very real place. But it was also famous because if you've read the book of Ruth in the Bible, when Ruth and Naomi came back to Israel after the famine, they came to Bethlehem. All, it's it's. Absolutely throughout the history books, but most famous, the most famous uh, aspect of Bethlehem is the fact that the greatest king of all Israel, King David, actually came from Bethlehem. So if you were going to make up a story, you wouldn't choose Bethlehem because even though it wasn't huge and it wasn't big, it was definitely significant and people knew Bethlehem and people could go to Bethlehem and people could say, hey, did this really happen here? People could talk to other people that lived in Bethlehem. I've been in 2013. I had the chance to go over to Israel, had the chance to stay in Bethlehem for a few nights, uh, walk down from my hotel to the church of the nativity. And what's interesting about the Church of the Nativity is it's one of the few holy sites, historical sites, that quite probably actually is in the right place. When, if you've never been over to Israel, what may be disappointing to you is that most of the sites you go to are pretty much a good guess at what happened where. Uh, A lot of that got lost in history. And the truth is also that this can be somewhat disappointing. People walk and they say, oh, I'm walking where Jesus walked. Well, probably you're walking about 20 feet above where Jesus walked because they built upon cities and things like that. There are a couple places where the old city is still preserved, and you can kind of see that. But the Church of the Nativity is one of the few places where it was marked very early and it was preserved throughout history, the place where they believe the stable was or the cave was where Jesus was born. Uh, It was marked very early uh, in history. And then Helena, the mother of Constantine uh, in 315 or early 4th century, decided as they converted to Christianity that that site where Christ was born ought to be preserved. So Helena went to Israel and did a careful search and research, all the residents and everyone that was there, to mark uh, and make sure they had right, the right spot marked where that stable would have been. She built the basilica there. The basilica burned down in about 500s, the early 6th century. Then it was rebuilt, but right in that same spot, right in Bethlehem. Um, when the Persians came through uh, in the 6th and 7th century, they destroyed almost all the holy sites that they came across, but they did not destroy the basilica in Bethlehem, the church of the Nativity. And legend has it, at least the legend goes, that the reason they did not destroy it is because inside the church of the Nativity is a picture, is depicted the wise men And the wise men came from the east, and they're in Persian garb, and so they preserved and did not destroy the church because of the Persian history of it. And so quite likely, it's in the right spot. And so you hear about Bethlehem, and it sounds like this quaint place, but it's a real place. Like I said, I was there. Uh, I got lost in Bethlehem. Um, I wasn't singing a little town of Bethlehem there. It seemed like a big town at that point. I had to take a cab, and I'm pretty sure I got ripped off in Bethlehem. Um, because the cab driver took me a very circuitous route to a short, uh, short distance to my hotel. But it's a real place. People live there. Uh, one of my favorite restaurants in Belmont right now is called The Loading Dock, uh, not far from our campus there in Belmont. And the guy that runs The Loading Dock, his name is Fawad, and he's a Christian from Bethlehem. And you can go and talk to Fawad, and he'll tell you all about Bethlehem and growing up there and what it's like to live there. It's a real place with real people. It's not a fictional place. Um, It's not a place that um, you can't go visit or that someone couldn't find on the map. Nazareth has often actually been the hang-up for scholars because there's no Old Testament evidence of a city called Nazareth. And up until recently, scholars would say Nazareth doesn't show up on any map until the 4th century, and so it did not exist in the time of Jesus. But as archaeology and scholarship starts to catch up with the Bible, sudden discoveries are revealing that there very likely was a place called Nazareth in the time of Jesus. One of the most important discoveries was of uh, the records of where the priests went when the temple was destroyed in 70 A.D. The temple was destroyed in 70 A.D., and the priests that used to serve at the temple in Jerusalem were scattered, and there was a record kept of where they were sent. There are 24 records that were discovered of where these priests were sent, and one of them was sent to a small city, small town called Nazareth. Uh, very small, probably about 60 acres, about four or 500 people. Not a big place, um, but more and more evidence is being unearthed as well, archaeological evidence that actually Nazareth did exist. So, Dave... I think the uh, evidence and the, the fact that they're citing places, if you and I were going to write a fictional account, we probably wouldn't include real places that people could verify. So I think that really speaks to the authenticity of this message that we read in Matthew. So I hope that helps.
0: Yeah, that was
1: great. Thanks. Thank you.
0: Uh, uh, can, I, can I go on? Oh, yeah, Lou, you're doing a great job. Okay. Go on, continue. Uh, okay, we're, we're, we, uh, yeah, okay, good. Uh, The visit of the Magi. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea, during the time of King Herod, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem and asked, Where is the one who has been born king of the Jews? We saw his star in the east and have come to worship him. When King Herod heard this, he was disturbed, and all Jerusalem with him. When he had called together all the people's chief priests, And teachers of the law, he asked them where the Christ was to be born. In Bethlehem in Judea, they replied, for this is what the prophet has written. But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means the least among the rulers of Judah. For out of you will come a ruler who will be the shepherd of my people, Israel. Then Herod called the Magi secretly On coming to the house, they saw the child with his mother Mary, and they bowed down and worshipped him. Then they opened their treasures and presented him with gifts of gold and of incense and of myrrh. And having been warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, they returned to their country by another route, the escape to Egypt. When they had gone, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream. Get up, he said. When Herod realized that he had been outwitted by the Magi, he was furious, and he gave order to kill all the boys in Bethlehem and its vicinity who were two years old and under in accordance with the time he had learned from the Magi.
1: Um, you know, well, it's just that, I mean, come on, that was a terrible thing if that really happened. What is it now? Well, he, he killed all those babies. Like, we have it here in the Bible, but we don't read about that in the history books or anything, so why is it only in the Bible?
2: You know, Dave, I thought someone would ask this question. Uh, it's, it's a question that is sometimes raised. It is the only place we have evidence of what people call the murder of the innocents of this order to kill children that Herod gives to kill all the boys under two in Bethlehem. He gives that order because it's likely that the magi or the uh, wise men from um, the east arrived probably a couple of years after Jesus was born. He's probably a toddler at this point, um, <clears throat> walking around uh, at least... And so he gives orders to kill all the... Uh, so those nativity scenes aren't exactly accurate where they put the shepherds and the wise men there, but it looks nice. Uh, <clears throat> so we put them there. Uh, but, the, uh, but it is a question that's sometimes raised. Why, haven't, why don't you hear about this elsewhere? I mean, in our day and age, you hear about all kinds of news. You hear about news that isn't news. Um, there's all kinds of stories in the real news about fake news this week. And some of the real news you hear I think sometimes isn't even real news. Like sometimes I'll turn on the TV and you, uh, you know, I'll listen to the news in the morning and it'll be a story about someone who almost got hit by a car but didn't really get hit by a car a few towns over overnight and they didn't get hurt and no charges were filed but for some reason we felt the need to share that story and I'm thinking so there's no story here and I'll never get that 30 seconds of my life back but... It's shared as news, and you hear about all kinds of things. So, of course, if there's a genocide of innocent children under two years old in a city, we think we'd hear about it, but maybe not. Here's why. Let's think about the time that this took place in, one, the place, and two, the person. Where it took place was this town of Bethlehem, and where the song is right and accurate, it is a little town, probably not real big. Um, probably about 450, 500 people in a, um, uh, normally as Bethlehem was. Now, of course, when Mary and Joseph went there, it was the time of the census. And so you had all kinds of people flooding back to their uh, place of origin. And so the inn was full. Um, because, uh, because you had all the people that are normally there. But when you look at the normal population of Bethlehem, probably 450, 500 people. So when you take that and you think, okay, how many of them were uh, adults of uh, you know, childbearing age uh, in, that were there? Take out the kids, take out the older adults, take out the younger ones. And then you say, okay, of those that are childbearing age, how many might have children under two years old it really narrows it down to probably, uh, many people believe, maybe 10 to 12 kids. Significant? Of course. You, you, don't, you don't make light of any of, you know, death, unnecessary death of innocent people and innocent children, but not hundreds, certainly not thousands, um, probably 10, 12 kids. And certainly in our day and age, that may be a significant thing. But then we also have to look at who we're dealing with. We're dealing with someone named Herod the Great, who was not great because he was a great man, like you want to invite him to your party. Just the opposite. He was called Herod the Great because he had these great building programs, but he was also quite a tyrant. Uh, In fact, one person has said, it'd be better to be a pig in Herod's house than a family member because you have a more likely chance of surviving. Because Herod the Great thought nothing of killing off family members or his wife, sons, anyone who he thought was a threat to his power or might pose a threat to his power. So he would give orders to kill people all the time. It was nothing for Herod to issue an order to, to kill people or to kill many people in a certain place. So what seems extreme to us uh, was unfortunately... Probably, kind of a regular day at the office for Herod the Great. And history might not take as much note of it as we might think that it would. Uh, And the other thing is, the truth is, it's a very violent time, but even in our time, if we're honest, we don't hear about all of the incidents and aspects of violence, even in our day and age. Uh, We all know that something's going on over in Syria... Maybe you're informed about it, maybe you're not. But how many of us, if I asked you, how many died last Saturday in the Syrian conflict would know that it was 28? Or how many would know that uh, last Sunday it was 27 that were killed? Or that since 2011 when the conflict began, uh, that uh, some estimates are that 450,000 people have died or been killed and 50,000 of those children And many of us aren't aware of those numbers, and they're in our day and age in a time where we have a 24-hour news cycle. So the fact that uh, all of history may not have taken note to uh, this order that was given in Bethlehem, it's certainly a significant event in the life of the families that were infected, certainly a significant event in Bethlehem, but likely not something that the larger world would have taken note of. But those who saw it as the fulfillment of a prophecy and understood the significance of it, recorded it and took note of it. So hopefully that helps Dave that you. question. Thank you.
0: Go ahead, Luke. Sorry. Then what was said to the prophet Jeremiah was fulfilled. A voice is heard in Ramah, weeping and great mourning, Rachel weeping for her children and refusing to be comforted because they are no more. The return to Nazareth.
1: Uh, excuse me? Excuse oh, you've me? you got
0: to be kidding.
1: <laughs> so I only have 20 more questions, Lou, so I'm sorry. I'm going to... No, this is my last one, I promise. But it keeps saying the word prophet. So how do we know that, you know, this was really fulfilled ahead of time and it wasn't that they wrote all the stories after Jesus came to make them kind of fit the mold, Or maybe Jesus just chose to fulfill this on his own.
0: Oh, how... Manipulate the place that he was born?
2: Yeah, I don't know. You never know. Pastor? Another question I thought someone might ask, Lewis. Um, and I thought this might be your last question, Dave. Uh, question about prophecies, uh, the prophecies that Jesus fulfilled. When you look at the Old Testament, uh, the, the old covenant that came previous, the Jewish scriptures that came previous to Jesus' life, there are some 300 or so prophecies about the Messiah. Uh, 300 or so prophecies, uh, that number I say are so, because some will say, okay, this was, this wasn't. There's some, there's some bit of arguing on which ones might particularly point to the Messiah and which ones might be in a little bit of dispute. But there's hundreds. And Jesus fulfilled them all in his life. And uh, some people will say, well, you know, maybe it was just a coincidence that that happened. But coincidence, uh, you know, mathematicians would disagree with that. And non-Christian mathematicians would disagree with that. Uh, Some mathematicians that have done the odds on this have looked at one particular one, looked at the odds and said, what are the odds that someone would fulfill eight prophecies that were given before they were born, that a person might fulfill just eight prophecies about their life, they put the odds at one in a hundred million billion. Uh, One particular statistician put the odds at that they would fulfill eight prophecies in their life. And the visual depiction of that was a hundred million billion silver dollars uh, would cover the state of Texas two feet deep in silver dollars. And the odds are that you would mark one of those silver dollars... And then tell a blind person to go in and pick one and that they would pick the one that you marked. In the state of Texas with an ocean of silver dollars two feet deep, the odds are quite remarkable, almost impossible that that would happen. That's just eight. Another mathematician, statistician, did uh, did it based on 48 prophecies. What would be the odds that a person would fulfill 48 prophecies? prophecies when their life. Still a significant amount, but still far less than the number that we see fulfilled in the life of Jesus. He put the number at the odds being one in a trillion, 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 trillion to the 12th power is what he put the odds at of fulfilling 48 prophecies in a single person's life. It is, to say the least, unlikely. That that would happen, so it's not coincidence that it happened. But others might say, "Well, what about maybe maybe uh, the authors just wrote later and just wrote the events that so that they fit the prophecies that were given." Well, that goes back to the first question that Dave asked about the manuscripts and when they were written. And if they were written as close to Jesus' life as we have evidence that they were, they would very easily be refuted as legitimate prophecies fulfilled by people who had a lot to gain by actually refuting them. Uh, Because the religious leaders would have very quickly said, no, we didn't pay Judas 30 pieces of silver, we paid him 10, so that wasn't a fulfillment of that Old Testament prophecy, Or the centurion and the Romans could say, no, we did actually break the bones of Jesus when he was on the cross, so that prophecy that said none of his bones would be broken, that's not fulfilled in his life. But they weren't disputed. There's no evidence or record of any of these prophecies being disputed by people in his own life that would uh, certainly benefit if this wasn't. In fact, we see just the opposite. We see people who are writing who would say, well, even though this has taken place, they still choose not to believe or not to follow. Um, So it's not uh, likely that the authors manipulated the text after. And as to the question about whether Jesus himself manipulated his life to fulfill prophecies, well, maybe there's a couple you can look at and say, well, he went here because the prophecy said the prophet should come from there. But so many of those, he would have absolutely no control over where he was born, the flight down to Egypt, the return back to Nazareth, The uh, fact that his bones would not be broken on the cross, the 30 pieces of silver that would be paid to Judas for his betrayal, things he would have absolutely no control and way to manipulate, but were fulfilled perfectly to a T in his life. It's highly unlikely it would be uh, coincidence he couldn't manipulate it. The authors didn't write far enough afterwards for myth and legend to come about So the more likely and more reasonable conclusion is that he fulfilled all of these prophecies that were given about him. And I think prophecies, far from being something that would uh, detract from us following Jesus, really give confidence to following Jesus. So, Lewis.
0: After Herod died, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt. So was fulfilled what was said through the prophets, he will be called a Nazarene.
2: <sighs>
0: this is the word of the Lord.
2: Thank you, Lewis, thank you, Dave. Appreciate your help this morning uh, with this message. Mo- um, since I don't have time for a sermon this morning, um, we'll just wrap things up. Uh, much of what you just heard came from this little book called A Case for Christmas by Lee Strobel. You'll receive a copy on your way out this morning uh, so that you can read it uh, and perhaps share it with someone else at Christmas time. Um, Lee Strobel. If you don't know who Lee Stobel was, he is a Yale-educated lawyer who became the uh, legal editor of the Chicago Tribune's legal section as a non-Christian, a non-believer. And at one point, he set out to disprove the claims of Christianity and to disprove the resurrection. Uh, He thought it would be simple. On that journey and on that route, along that way, he became a believer and follower of Jesus Christ because the evidence just pointed so strongly to the fact that it was true. Strobel just closes out part of uh, this book. He writes on page 98, he says it this way After spending nearly two years investigating the identity of the Christmas child, I was ready to reach a verdict. For me, the evidence was clear and compelling. Yes, Christmas is a holiday overlaid with all sorts of fanciful beliefs, from flying reindeer to Santa Claus sliding down chimneys. But I became convinced that if you drill down to its core, Christmas is based on a historical reality, the incarnation. God becoming man, spirit taking on flesh, the infinite entering the finite the eternal becoming time bound. It's a mystery backed up by facts and now I believed we're simply too strong to ignore. I'm going to ask our music ministry to return as we close out our service. Here's the the point this morning. Maybe you're convinced, maybe you came in here thinking it's a fictional story. Maybe you came in here not sure of it. um, And maybe this morning's, time together, move the needle for you a little bit, one way towards understanding that this is a true historical account. Or maybe even stronger, you come in and you hear these things and maybe some of your doubts and questions were answered because God knew you were going to walk in here this morning with those doubts and questions and he perhaps directed me and my words in such a way that would answer a question that you've walked in here with or long had that he answered for you this morning. And maybe you're convinced, okay, it is a historical account. But here's the point. It's not enough to believe that something is true or that historically happened. It's not enough just to believe something happened in history and to say it's true. The real question is, what are you going to do with that knowledge? It's kind of like if uh, I knew everything about my wife... And I knew that she was the perfect woman for me. And I knew that she, we would be great together and that we would have a great marriage to come. And I believed all of that. But I just left it at that. And just said, all right, well, have a nice day. If you don't act on the knowledge, all it is is knowledge that you have, but it doesn't change your life. The Christmas story is not only a historical reality, It is something that God offers to you to not only believe as true, but to follow and to give your life to and to change your life forever. It's not enough just to believe something's true. It's what are you going to do with it? So if you sit here this morning and you say, yeah, I believe that, I believe God sent his son and believe the virgin birth, it's all possible. And and I believe God probably did that. and, And I believe all of it happened. What have you done with that knowledge? Have you taken God up on his offer of faith in his son, Jesus Christ, the forgiveness he offers to you and the life that he offers to you when you put your faith in him? Because if you really believe it's true, then you have to believe everything else Jesus said. And he said, if you'll follow me, then I will give you life. And I will give you life abundantly. If you'll follow me and you seek first my kingdom, if you seek first what I offer, then all these other things you're worried about will be taken care of in him. If you really believe it, question is will you put your faith and trust in him enough to put your life in his hands let's pray father we come before you this morning and in a room like this with this many people Lord we recognize and I recognize that there are many people at very different places in their journey some are like Lee Strobel was Just exploring, just trying to disprove it so that they don't have to believe it. Trying to find a a way to, to say that it's not true so that they can be off the hook because they know if it is true that they'd have to do something about it. Lord, I pray that you would speak to each and every one of us where we're at today. Lord, and if Lord, we've come to a place where we recognize that the facts of the story are historically accurate, then Lord, help us to take action in our own lives upon that. And if you're here this morning and that's where you are and you recognize that the Christmas story is not just a story but a historical fact, but you haven't done anything about it, this morning I encourage you to take this moment to put your life in his hands to put your life in the hands of Jesus that you would say God if you did that for me if you loved me that much that you would break all the laws of nature that you would supernaturally come down that you would live your life and give your life for me if you did all that for me and that's true then I want to live my life for you and I want to give my life to you And if that's you this morning, I encourage you. It's not difficult. God made it simple that you in your own space and in your own heart would tell him that you want to follow him. That you'd ask him to be your Lord and to lead you, to guide you in your life. And that you would commit to listening to him and to following his voice. That you would just do that in your own space right there. And we want to help you follow him. And if that's where you're at this morning, then you can um, you can come to the connection booth right out in the hallway after the service and we'd like to give you a little bag of books that'll help you on your journey. If you'll let us know your name and that you want to know more about following Jesus, we'll call you this week and let you know more about what it means to follow Jesus. Lord, I thank you. I thank you for the love that you have showed us in coming down and living among us. Lord, I pray for those this morning who are, Lord, at that place where they are making a decision to follow you and to put their life in your hands, that this morning would be the day that you would give them the courage to do that. This morning would be the day that you would give them the courage to take their hands off the wheel and to put you in control of their life. And that as they do that, that you would be faithful to your word, that you would come into their life, that you would live within them, guide them, and lead them into this full and abundant life, Lord. God, we thank you. I thank you that the incarnation is grounded not only in our hearts, not only in scripture, but in history. That you broke into history split time in half, that you broke into history and changed the world. But I thank you for changing my life and everyone's life in here who puts their faith and trust in you. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.